This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. This week, I am thrilled to announce a new show from Very Serious Media, which is called Serious Trouble. It's a new podcast. Uh, I'm going to be co-hosting it with Ken White, uh, who is a criminal defense attorney in Los Angeles. It's a show about the law. And we have a sample of it for you here today on the Very Serious podcast. Uh, It's a discussion that I had with Ken about the January 6 hearings uh, and the specific allegations the committee has been making in an effort seemingly to get the Justice Department to charge former President Trump with two specific offenses related to his efforts to pressure then-Vice President Mike Pence not to count all of the electoral votes in an effort to throw the 2020 presidential election to Donald Trump. Trump. Now, if you don't know Ken White, you might know Ken uh, because Ken and I hosted all the president's lawyers together for a number of years from KCRW. Uh, That was a podcast about Donald Trump and his lawyers and his legal problems. Ken is a criminal defense attorney based in Los Angeles. He also does civil litigation, including defamation litigation. There's been a lot of defamation litigation in the news over the last few years, some of it related to Donald Trump, some of it related to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And so, It was great when Donald Trump was president to be doing a show that was themed around Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is not president anymore. Uh, And so Ken and I are doing this new show uh, that is more broadly about the law, about criminal trials, about civil trials, and the people who face serious trouble around it. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the sample that we have for you today, uh, specifically about the January 6th hearings, uh, about the specific legal offenses that the January 6th committee is alleging that Donald Trump committed and could be charged for by the Justice Department. They seem to be using these hearings, which I expected to be more focused on sort of a public-facing argument about why the riot was bad, which I think is a politically challenging thing to do because we all saw the riot happen on national television. Uh, When Republicans talk about there being saturation conversation about that, it's kind of true in the sense that, you know, people know about what happened to the extent they care to know about what happened. I don't think yet another uh, presentation of how bad it was is likely to do that much. But the committee instead has really, there's been this strong legal focus in their presentation. The argument seems to be not so much one to voters, although the voters are supposed to take interest in this. It's an argument to the Justice Department. You could bring these charges. You should bring these charges. Donald Trump did commit these crimes. Uh, and so what I discuss uh, on today's show with Ken, uh, the, the segment that you are going to hear here, um, is about that contention. Did Donald Trump really commit these offenses? Would you be able to make a strong legal case against him if you were the federal government trying to prosecute him? There are some specific issues related to intent. Uh, when you charge someone with obstructing an official proceeding, which is one of the, the sort of the key charge that we're talking about here, did Donald Trump do that? Can he be criminally charged for that? Um, they have to do so corruptly. And, and that goes to their mental state. They have to know that they weren't entitled to the thing they're asking for. And that's why the committee spent so much time trying to establish that Donald Trump knew that he hadn't won the election. Um, they keep bringing up all of these people who told Donald Trump, you didn't win, this evidence is nonsense. Uh, the, you know, they didn't stuff the ballot boxes or the, you know, there's no like international conspiracy around the Dominion voting machines. Um, that journey into Donald Trump's mind is going to be a necessary part of any prosecution if they want to bring one. And I, I talked with Ken about how you would talk to a jury about that. Because as Ken notes, you can't get inside anybody's mind. It's not just Donald Trump. The jury has to infer somebody's mental state from evidence. And we talked about what it would mean to argue that in either direction about Trump. Um, So I encourage you to listen to the show. Um, I encourage you to subscribe to the show. It has its own Substack site. The URL is seriousTrouble.show. 
And running the podcast through Substack, I mean, you obviously you're already familiar with the Very Serious podcast, which also runs through Substack. Um, this new podcast, part of the advantage of it going through Substack and of you going to SeriousTrouble.show in order to sign up to receive it, um, is that means that uh, we can send you email updates when there are new shows that come out. It also allows us to set up a paid subscription for the show. And so there's going to be a free version of the show. If you sign up for free, uh, you'll get uh, approximately half the episodes. You get 20 episodes a year, and we think that will be very enjoyable, even if you're just getting the show for free. But if you pay for the show, uh, you'll get uh, an an episode nearly every week. We're going to do at least 40 episodes in a year. Um, You'll also get access to discussion threads about each of the shows. Uh, We we anticipate this show is going to have a lively uh, listener discussion community in much the same way that Very Serious does. And there's going to be interactive opportunities. Uh, Ken and I are going to take questions from the audience, questions out of those discussion threads, uh, some audio questions, which is something that we used to do back at KCRW, um, where listeners will send in their questions, we'll play them on the show and answer them. And we think that's going to be really enjoyable. Uh, So by all means, try it out. Give it a listen. See what you think. If you're ready to subscribe for Serious Trouble, uh, to get all those episodes, you can sign up right now at SeriousTrouble.show. It's going to be $6 a month or $60 a year. If you're already a paying subscriber to Very Serious, though, to the Very Serious newsletter and podcast, we have a discount code for you. We will give you Serious Trouble for half off. And you can go to JoshBarrow.com. As a paying subscriber, you will see a post uh, right near the top uh, called Introducing Serious Trouble. And that will have your discount code link in order to get that half price uh, uh, subscription for one year. On the other hand, for super fans out there, if you've been waiting for Ken and me to come back and podcast for him, and we've gotten some frankly embarrassing emails from some of you, we have something special for you. Uh, founding memberships are $250. Uh, we'll send you a mug that says, I survived the Josh and Ken podcast hiatus. Uh, so how about that? I am really excited to share this show with you. It, it was so much fun doing this show with Ken for a number of years, and I'm really excited to be back working with him every week. Uh, I think we're going to have really lively, interesting, informative conversations that allow us to get a little bit deeper into certain legal issues uh, than we were able to last time around when we were being so jerked around by Donald Trump. And I really hope you're going to be uh, listening and enjoying it. Most importantly, though, I want to say thank you. Uh, If you're a very serious listener, it's because of you that we can launch new projects like this one. Sarah and I are very grateful for your support of all of these projects. Okay, now on to the show. So I was I was interested in the approach that they have taken with these hearings so far, and a little more impressed than I expected to be, because I always feel like Politically, a problem with doing presentations about the January 6th riot is that it, it happened in front of all of us on national television. And the exhortations that the then President Donald Trump made to people to, you know, go and fight like hell happened on national TV. Uh, and so, you know, you can learn specifics about, you know, allegedly Trump said to someone, maybe, maybe my supporters have the right idea about we should hang Mike Pence. By and large, what he did, he did in public. And the moral evaluations, the political evaluations you could make about that, I think were already pretty clear at the time. And so a project of trying to get people to care more or to change their opinions about this, I feel like is, is challenging because of that. So I was interested that the hearing really seemed focused on making a legal case, a criminal case, or the, the, the case that members of the committee would like the Justice Department to make, that former President Trump not only behaved in an abominable manner or an impeachable manner, but that he behaved in a criminal manner. Uh, and specifically, they, they've already said this in filings, and they, they back this up in the, in, the, in the live presentation. There's a couple of statutes uh, that the committee has contended to the Justice Department that President Trump violated, that he sought to obstruct an official proceeding uh, by trying to get then-Vice President Mike Pence to refuse to count duly certified electoral votes, and then also that through that process, he uh, committed fraud against the United States. 
And so I'm, I'm interested in what, what, what you think about that presentation. I thought it was effective, uh, Josh, and I thought it was more disciplined than I anticipated. And, you know, the, I, I went into it, I admit, with expectations very low. And in fact, I wasn't even going to watch it until I started seeing some reactions to it because I, I expected that the typical congressional sideshow, which is, you know, everyone taking their five or 10 minutes to bloviate to get on camera for their constituents. But although I, I wouldn't exactly call this a professional prosecutorial presentation, it was substantially more disciplined than you usually get from. Congress. It was more focused. It was less, look at me, uh, I'm talking. And it actually had specific goals that it seemed reasonable it could meet. You're right that they had a lot of focus on those two potential crimes, obstruction of an official proceeding and fraud on the United States. And uh, the interesting thing was they seemed to understand that in part, the big lift here is not so much uh, are there facts which could potentially show violations of those statutes. It's does the United States Department of Justice have the political will to go through with it? And this struck me as an effort to uh, try to encourage the Department of Justice to cowboy up and to uh, go through with the extraordinarily difficult, politically controversial, potentially dangerous uh, process of maybe actually bringing some charges against a former president or people in his close orbit. Well, so, I mean, aside from the political difficulty of bringing those charges, a, a question that prosecutors would ask any time is, you know, what are our odds of securing a conviction on this? How solid is this case? And my understanding is that the, the big legal challenge here is, is an intent problem, that you have to show that the former president corruptly sought to interfere with an, an official proceeding. And, and in order to do that, you have to show that he knew that he was not entitled to the thing that he was seeking. So that he knew that he lost the election. He knew that, you know, that Georgia or these various other states had not, in fact, cast a plurality of votes for him. And that when he sought to change the count of the electoral vote from those states, he was trying to falsify that count, that you have to prove that he knew that. Because that seems hard, right? Because they, they, they trotted out all of these people to say that they had told Donald Trump that that was the case, that he had not won the election. And they showed that those people had good reasons to argue that, that former President Trump did not have a good reason to think that he had won the election. But that doesn't show what's in his mind, right? And it's always, the, I mean, this was something that has come up with us for years, that when, when a, in court, if you have to show something about Donald Trump's state of mind, that's a real problem because it's hard to demonstrate what Donald Trump's state of mind is. So how did they, how did they do with that, showing that a prosecutor could actually meet that intense standard, show, show that Trump knew, knew that he wasn't entitled to what he was seeking? Well, what they did was bring multiple witnesses to attest that Trump was told repeatedly by different people that these claims were bogus, that there was no evidence of real election fraud, certainly not on the scale that would result in any change to the outcome. So, uh, I mean, there's never been a way to prove directly what's in somebody's mind, uh, right? And you and you have jury instructions that are standard about this, about how we have to infer what was in somebody's mind by a, a series of things, including their actions, their words, what happened in front of them, that type of thing. And so for a long time, we've known and we've been talking about this 
uh, bizarrely American paradox that the crazier you act, the more you can get away with under the law in some ways. That because Donald Trump is such an outsized personality, such a, a trash talker who seems so normally disconnected from reality and from you know, what he says actually meaning things in the way other people use words, that it's much harder to show his intent. Uh, I think what this this committee did a pretty good job of doing is putting on the best case for why a jury would believe that he knew uh, that there was no there there, that the theory he was pushing was nonsense and that he did it anyway. So uh, the the standard for what a corrupt intent is is not as well developed as some other areas of, of criminal law, but it's pretty clear that if if you knew there was no legitimate purpose to what you were doing, you didn't have the right to do it, that that can rise to the level of corrupt intent. And it may be that simply being reckless about that, uh, disregarding everything in front of you and pressing forward without any real basis to believe it, uh, the sort of uh, stubborn refusal to acknowledge reality may also be sufficient for corrupt intent. So the trick here uh, is to overcome federal prosecutors' normal aversion to tough cases, normal aversion to rolling the dice with a jury, and um, very understandable reluctance to take on this uh, politically uh, apocalyptic type of thing that could dominate uh, the Justice Department for years and just kind of make them think they've got no choice. You mentioned reckless disregard there, that it could be enough to show that Trump was presented this information and should have understood it and and acted so recklessly in rejecting it uh, that that created corrupt intent. That sounds like the actual malice standard. Yeah, exactly. That's something that we've talked about a lot in defamation cases, that if you you say something false and damaging to the reputation of a public figure, in order to prove defamation, that person has to show either that you knew the thing you said was false or that you spoke with reckless disregard for the truth, uh, that you were presented with ample evidence that should have caused you to know it was false and you went ahead and proceeded anyway. And so that's, that's obviously easier than having to show that you knew would that be the standard for corrupt intent in a, in a criminal trial? I mean, would that would that be in the jury instructions? If there's a dispute about what it means to have corrupt intent, that's not a jury question, right? That's a question for the judge. And I assume one that they would have to lay out in the jury instructions to tell the jury what kind of state of mind they're even looking for in Donald Trump before deciding whether he committed this crime. Well, sure. The, the, the jury instruction, the definition of the offense you're going to give the jury is a matter for the judge. And then it's a matter for the jury to determine whether or not the prosecution proved that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. I think a lot of the time we sort of um, overestimate how deeply a jury analyzes this type of thing or how closely they follow instructions. I think most practitioners would say that jurors kind of get a big picture gestalt of it and then find their way to the result rather than going through the intricacies of, of these very carefully crafted jury instructions. And because of that, I think probably a real world federal jury um, handling a hypothetical criminal uh, obstruction of justice charge against Trump is going to take kind of a big picture, big story approach to it and not necessarily care that much about the exact contours of of this. But, you know, the the prosecutors will still tend, particularly federal prosecutors, 
still tend to very stubbornly cling to the idea that uh, jurors follow jury instructions and that they have to believe that 12 people who think like they do would find beyond a reasonable doubt that this particular definition is met. To answer your substantive question, right, you're drawing this this comparison to defamation law, where uh, for it to be defamation, when you say something about a public figure, you have to show actual malice, which is defined as knowing the statement is false or having reckless disregard that it's false. Reckless disregard meaning here that you deliberately look away from evidence um, that it's uh, true. Now, in criminal law, usually... Uh, criminal law avoids making kind of uh, distinctions like that. But there are some doctrines uh, about deliberate disregard uh, of evidence and things like that. And I think here in the case of defining what corruptly is, uh, that ultimately a judge is going to allow some sort of instruction to the effect that it can be corruptly if you deliberately disregard all evidence and stubbornly hew to something for which there is no evidence. Uh, the question is exactly what the contours of that are going to be. I assume that's an issue that would be appealed if there was a conviction, that there would be a dispute over whether that was a correct instruction, whether whether you can really establish corrupt intent with, without establishing that he, that he knew that he had lost the election. Is this something that would be likely, you know, I assume many years from now at this point, because I assume you wouldn't be able to have this appeal until, until after a verdict had been rendered that this could end up in the laps of the Supreme Court again? Sure, it could. But again, the the a judge may be cautious and the prosecutors may even be cautious and decide that they want to go for a more conservative approach, which is to prove to a jury that Donald Trump actually knew that his claims were false. And you know what? I, I, I think, again, a jury is going to go with a big picture. And I think a jury that wants to convict Trump is going to find their way to saying he did know that everything he was saying was bogus. You know, uh, I was once in front of a federal judge who went off on a 10-minute uh, diversion into the nature of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> and how do we know what we know? Uh, this was during taking the guilty plea of a uh, drug trafficker with about a fourth grade education and, and no English. So it wasn't the ideal place, uh, in my opinion, for a lesson on epistemology. But I mean, I think people will decide, you know what, he knew in the way that matters to us for this decision. Uh, and I, I suspect that he will, they will um, come back with that. What would a legal defense look like for Trump in a case like that? I, I assume it's a matter of arguing he genuinely believes that he won the election. I assume um, one client issue there is I assume Trump would want that to veer into, I won the election. And, you know, I believed this because it is true. So I, first of all, I imagine that there might be some client control issues. I can't imagine what it's like to have Donald Trump as a, as a criminal defense client. Um, but what do, you, what do you do in front of that jury to try to convince them that Donald Trump did not try to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding? I think you do exactly that. I think you both, because he's going to demand it and because it helps, try to put on the evidence that, in fact, there was election fraud. And, and this is the reason you want to do it. First of all, you're going for the holdout juror. You're, you're going for the, the mistrial, the person who's going to buy into these, frankly, nutty theories that no honest or serious person believes. 
Um, and, you know, there, there are plenty of conspiracy theorists out there, and there are people obviously vulnerable to this talk. So it's not an unreasonable goal. Can you call, like, Lynn Wood or Sidney Powell as an expert witness here? Is that allowed? Like, is the, isn't that like a Dobert problem? I don't think you'd call them as an expert witness, but you could certainly try to call them to establish Trump's state of mind. Okay. Uh, to say that, you know, we believed it was bogus and we explained to Donald Trump all the reasons we believed it was bogus and we did so completely sincerely and he reacted suggesting he believed us. So in trying to prove up that the um, election was was somehow fraudulent, you're helping your defense that he believed it was fraudulent, or at least you're creating a reasonable doubt about whether or not he believed it was fraudulent. And you also just, you know, you're filling the air with chaff. You're, you're, you're flooding uh, the zone with garbage uh, that tends to make the uh, some jurors perhaps to say, you know, this was all crazy. So it's hardly uh, surprising that Trump would think maybe it's true. What about fraud on the United States? I mean, because the at least the state of mind stuff might be somewhat difficult, but the the fact that there was this official proceeding that Donald Trump sought to obstruct seems very clear to me in terms of the evidence. He specifically asked Mike Pence not to count these votes. Fraud on the United States just sort of seems to me like a vaguer crime. What does it what does it add to you to also charge that? That's a good question. So first of all, the fraud on the United States, uh, interestingly, comes from the plain vanilla conspiracy statute. Okay, 18 U.S.C. 371 is the statute that you charge in federal court anytime you're charging anyone with a conspiracy to commit any federal crime. And it just says if two or more people conspire to commit any offense against the United States. Okay, but there's also this clause that says, or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof for any manner, for any purpose. So that clause of the statute, the fraud on the United States, is not the best developed area in terms of case law and what exactly it means. So I would expect a lot of battles over whether, you know, trying to trying to go through a procedure to contest votes, whether that can be defrauding the United States uh, under established case law. Because it's, it, you know, the easy uh, idea is we're trying to defraud the United States by like submitting false claims or claiming money that we're not entitled to or, or things like that. Well, the president would draw a salary. Sure. If he was reelected. That's, that's a good point. Could you hang your hat on that? You could try. Um, that might be one of the, the, uh, uh, better ideas, although probably the defense to that would be, yeah, but you know, someone's going to get the salary no matter what. Um, so it's it's just a poorly developed area of law. I, I think you've got these competing instincts and and competing uh, practices among prosecutors. On the one hand, there is a bit of a belt and suspenders practice, right, where. Uh, you want multiple theories. So in case the jury doesn't like one, maybe they'll want the other. On the other hand, you've got the keep it simple uh, practice, uh, which is that you know generally presenting it in a simpler way is better. Now, having just two counts, two theories is is relatively restrained and and probably doable. 
uh, as opposed to some people out here who are saying, oh, I now see these 10 federal crimes based on the January 6th <laughs> committee, and we should do all of them, which is, which is nonsense and not the way the federal prosecutors actually think. Yeah, I think one thing that might be a little surprising to people about the possibility of criminal charges for the former president here is that, at least initially, a lot of the talk around this focused around the riot as a possible area of Trump having criminal liability. And hundreds of other people have been charged for their actions in the Capitol riot specifically. President Trump gave this speech that I think in a layman's sense, was inciting of that crowd, telling them to go down to the Capitol and fight like hell. I assume it would be that there would be a really weak theory to try to charge him for literally inciting the riot, because unlike the conversations with Mike Pence, where he specifically asked him to do the thing that obstructed the, the official proceeding, his statements to the rioters were a lot more vague about exactly what he wanted them to do. He did not have a direct two-way conversation with them in the way that he did with Mike Pence. I assume that, that that is a much less attractive avenue in terms of trying to prove that the former president committed some sort of crime. It is. I mean, the committee is putting on evidence that people came and did violence at the Capitol because of Trump's exhortations. But I don't get the sense they're trying to sell this as incitement to riot or as that part as being criminal. You know, it's the Brandenburg standard here where you'd have to show that his words were intended and likely to cause imminent uh, lawless action. They don't seem to be trying to meet that standard. It seems rather that they're trying to show the consequences of his behavior in general to almost shame the Justice Department into doing something. So you're right that I think that where they're showing evidence that's plausible is really in the direct conspiracy to interfere with a vote count by making all these crazy arguments. And to, to return just for a second to the whole idea of um, fraud on the government, uh, fraud on the United States. Again, the statute is usually used for plain vanilla conspiracy to commit a federal crime. The defraud the United States is much less often used, but there's some case law from almost the turn of the 20th century, uh, 1910, basically, that says that to conspire to defraud the United States, and this is quoting from Chief Justice Taft, it means primarily to cheat the government out of property or money, but it also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. So I think what they're thinking about here is basically just using this as another way to say um, obstruct an official proceeding, uh, to use the same facts, the, the same conduct that he was challenging an election in a way he knew was dishonest uh, to fit two different statutes. One trend that we've seen over the last couple of decades at the Supreme Court is a, is a real reluctance uh, to criminalize political activity. Uh, the former uh, governor of Virginia, Bob McDonnell, was uh, was convicted uh, of misuse of his office, basically, for trying to do various uh, uh, actions related to the University of Virginia on behalf of a political donor. Um, and the Supreme Court threw out that conviction. They threw out the convictions related to Bridgegate, um, where the theory had basically been that these, these public officials in the state of New Jersey had misused a government resource, the George Washington Bridge, uh, to punish a recalcitrant mayor by creating a traffic jam in his city. They found that, that whatever that was, that wasn't criminal activity. And so I assume one argument that you would raise if you were Donald Trump on any of these cases is that Trump was engaged in politics, that there was a dispute over an election 
uh, and that he was trying to get a favorable outcome in the dispute and that he engaged in political activity to that purpose. How that should be addressed as a political question or that he had a First Amendment right to do various things here. What is the would, would the courts be sympathetic to any of those arguments that basically this was fundamentally political activity and therefore could not be criminal? So I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. He's going to try this argument, and he is going to try to draw those parallels to Supreme Court cases dealing with uh, wire and mail fraud uh, statutes and uh, prior prosecutions under the, th- the so-called theory of uh, theft of honest services, uh, that the thing of value that's being defrauded in those cases was the right of the people to the honest services of members of the government. The Supreme Court has really not liked that theory or cases related to it. In terms of whether it works, I think that if they can meet the elements here, uh, that it is a tougher lift for Trump. If the prosecutors can meet the elements. Exactly. So I, I think in terms of you know, uh, interfering uh, or obstruction of a government function uh, through dishonesty and even fraud on the United States, I think that uh, it's it's a tougher argument that uh, here and that you have to do more of a, of a reach in terms of statutory interpretation to come up with that type of defense. That's not to say that there aren't judges who I think will do it. I think there are some Trump-appointed judges who will do it. And I, I would... Uh, estimate there's, you know, a few votes on the Supreme Court for that. I don't think it's really a principled theory. I think at some point you get to this point where, you know, political activity is somehow outside the scope of the criminal law, and that's clearly not right. Uh, But I I absolutely think they'll try, and I think there are some judges who will go for it. So, but it sounds like overall, your view is pretty strongly that charges should be brought here, that, that there is... On this narrow set of charges, it's not, you know, not throw in the kitchen sink, not charge seditious conspiracy, not charge anything really even directly related to the riot, but related to this count of the the electoral votes, it sounds like you think they've made a strong case that justice ought to charge here, and also that they would have a very strong chance to prevail in a trial, which I would note also would presumably occur in Washington, D.C., so you're going to tend to draw a jury that will both be relatively informed about these events and relatively to the left politically, which would seem to be advantageous to the Justice Department. It, it sounds like you think they should they should go ahead. I think they, they should. Um, but let me give some qualifiers to what you just said, Josh. Um, first of all, I, I don't know that the Justice Department has the political will to do it. And this is purely a matter of political will. Are they willing to really make the rest of Biden's term about this, really let this dominate the the uh, affairs of the government, um, let it be used in all the political ways it's going to be, and take these risks, institutional risks that are involved. When you say the Justice Department, are you referring specifically to, to Attorney General Merrick Garland? Like who, who they're, they're, they're afraid that like people will see DOJ as politicized if they do this? I feel like that ship already sailed. Sure, it has, but you you still got this these people there concerned about how it's going to look and how it's going to affect. Let's be blunt, their careers. Uh, so, you know, in the sense of uh, if you come for the king, you best not miss. Uh, I think they're worried that this type of thing is going to be all consuming and maybe not successful. Uh, and you combine that with the federal prosecutor's traditional. You know, a rude person would say timidness, a less rude person would say caution, Um, and it's a tough lift. I'm not sure they have the will 
to do it. I do think they should. I think it's historically important. I think the showing of knowing wrongdoing is very strong and that the what the committee has shown makes it stronger. I don't think that I'm suggesting that it's likely to prevail. I think it could prevail, but I think there's some serious obstructions to it. One is I think that there's going to be all sorts of legal impediments. I think he's going to file all sorts of motions and he's going to seek emergency review by writ from uh, federal, the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, which the court may give since it's such an extraordinary situation to be prosecuting a former president. So I can see a lot of delays from that type of thing. I could even see the United States Supreme Court being willing to get involved in some sort of um, intermediate review before the case goes to trial over these types of issues. Again, because it's such an extraordinary situation. Normally, of course, in a federal criminal case, you have to wait to the end till you're convicted and sentenced before you get review. But there are opportunities for extraordinary review. And this is exactly the type of case where those would happen. Um, I also think that there are reasons to be concerned whether in America you can get a jury that will uh, vote 12-0 to convict Donald Trump. Even drawn from residents of the District of Columbia? Even drawn from residents of District of Columbia, I think it could be a, a crapshoot. I think certainly I would much rather be trying in District of Columbia than than most other places in the United States. But, I mean, you know, 35% of the country believes in, in some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, that's where we are. We are extremely divided politically as a country. So... I think it's worth the effort and that the effort is important, though. So that's part of the first episode of my brand new podcast with Ken White. It's called Serious Trouble. The full episode is out now. And by the way, here's a shortcut. Find the full episode at SeriousTrouble.show and just skip ahead in the episode to 33 minutes and 34 seconds. You'll pick up right where this episode left off. Uh, we talked about the depositions that we've seen video from in those January 6 hearings, including from Bill Barr. A lot of these people really kind of looked like they were having a lot of fun, which was really weird in the context of a, well, first of all, any deposition, but especially a deposition about a serious matter like this one. Uh, Ken and I talked about the strategy if you're a lawyer conducting a deposition and uh, why it's not even so unusual to try to create that sort of environment where the witness feels comfortable, is, is almost enjoying themselves, uh, and maybe uh, lets their guard down a little bit. We also talked about the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp defamation trial. A, a theme for years when Ken and I would talk about defamation suits is how difficult they are to win, how high the standard of proof is, especially when the person alleging defamation is a public figure. And uh, Amber Heard and Johnny Depp are both very famous celebrities. And yet Johnny Depp won on all of his claims and Amber Heard won on one of her counterclaims, which I found very surprising. I, it seems to me like that essentially has to have been a mistake, uh, that nobody should have been able to win anything in this litigation over this extremely embarrassing matter where clearly both of them behave very badly. Ken's view is a little bit more measured. Uh, you can listen to hear that. Uh, and anyway, that is all for this week. I will be back next week with another episode of Very Serious. My guest then will be the economist Alison Schrager. Uh, and I think you're really going to like our conversation about our contention uh, that we can no longer have nice things, um, which has to do with interest rates and inflation and the, a lot of the things that have defined 
our economy over the last almost decade in terms of businesses expanding in ways that don't necessarily have to make money. Uh, It's very easy for consumers to go out and buy things because debt is really cheap. Uh, That's all coming to an end. uh, And uh, that's going to have a lot of implications for the broader economy, which we talk about some on this show. Um, But I'm going to talk with Allison even more about some of the implications that has at an individual level and at a company level. Uh, Interest rates, uh, you may not care about interest rates, but interest rates care about you. uh, And uh, they may uh, affect the decisions that are available to you a, a great deal in the coming years. Until then, Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and by Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 